remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. You are listening to Speaker Points, an NSD China podcast. Welcome to another episode of Speaker Points, NSDA China podcast. I'm here with our intern working with us right now, Zaichi Zhang. Zaichi Zhang is a Nanjing Ren. He came yeah, from correct. Nanjing Foreign Language School. He was the team captain there, one of our earliest NSDA debaters. During his tenure as a debater, he was Beijing regional champion. He was third place at the Shandong and Jiangsu regionals, and he has judged over ten regionals for us, including the sixth and seventh national tournament. He also worked our summer camp last、yeah. year. And like I mentioned, he's interning with us right now while he's back from college for the winter break. So,、uh, welcome, Zaichi. Hi, thank you. <laughs> so, where are you going to college now? Well, I'm currently in Oberlin College. That's、mm. a liberal arts college in Ohio.、Mm. It's near Cleveland, but it's still like 40 minutes car drive. No,、oh. so pretty remote. Right, small town. Yeah. Yeah. And are you enjoying it there? Well. For the academic parts, definitely, but definitely not the food. You know, <laughs> not very good Chinese food in Ohio or that part of Ohio. Yeah, we usually have a Chinese restaurant opened by a Mexican family. Really? I mean, yeah, that's weird, right?、Mm-hmm. So they they call themselves Red, and the Chinese name you won't believe it. For those of you out there who know some Chinese culture, the Chinese name of their restaurant is called Hong Lou Meng, which is like one of the most popular Chinese novels. Which have nothing to do with like food. I mean, there is definitely a lot of food in there, but not a good name for Chinese restaurant. That's kind of weird. How did they figure out that name? Any idea? I don't know. Probably. I mean, red means Hong in Chinese,、uh, and they probably just find like a random novel name starting with red. Probably. They probably and they probably looked up on the internet, saw like red is means a color of fortune or good、yeah. luck or something.、Mm-hmm. I remember when I first moved to China. You know. When you're a foreigner going to a new country, you kind、mm-hmm. of check out any information you can get. So I was like trying to find anything I could, and、mm-hmm. there's a lot of silly information on there that's、oh. like very stereotypical or outdated.、Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of treating the country as like an old traditional,、yeah. uh, like nothing's changed. And one of them was like, always wear red to important meetings and、oh, stuff、God. like that, you know. And so I got like my red ties <laughs> ready and all that、oh. stuff,、um, but. Yeah, it's not that.、Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what happened with them. So, reason why we're having Zaichi on today, like I said, is he has been interning with us, and one of the things he's been working on is the new topic, the technology personal data topic. The exact wording being, technology companies' use of personal data is more beneficial than harmful. And like I said, Zaichi has done a lot of work on not just this topic, but in the past,、uh, working on lots of topics. So I thought he would be a great person to talk to, to start discussing this topic and its 
potential arguments and implications. How has your research gone? What arguments are you coming across that you think are particularly strong? Well, yeah, first of all, I'm flattered because <laughs> what I've done is basically I did some research and cut up some cards. So uh, at this stage of my preparation, I find this topic really extendable. I mean, it's a large topic about technology and personal data and privacy. Both sides can both can basically go to a lot of fields in this. For example, as Kel just mentioned, privacy and also about the business models of tech giants. So yeah, a lot of potential arguments that can come up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned tech giants. There was a topic a few years ago, or I think last year, mm-hmm. for U.S. nationals that was about should antitrust regulations mm-hmm. be implemented on tech giants. Yeah. For those of you listening that may not know, uh, antitrust regulations means like stopping monopolies uh, or monopolistic practices with businesses. Do you think there is potential for some monopoly style arguments in this personal data topic we're going to have this semester? Yes, definitely. Especially when you look at the current democratic election, lots of candidates have like brought up topics on like breaking down Google, such as like Elizabeth Warren, she's talked about this a lot, and also Andrew Yang boosting for like tax on tech giants for using your personal data. He was saying like U.S. taxpayers should get paid for every Google search, for every Uber mile, everything like that. So yes, definitely, there will be a lot of talks on this kind of potential monopolies in tech industry. And as a matter of fact, there's only been, I think, one or two antitrust accusations being brought up in the recent decades. So yes, it is. Are those two, I, Microsoft, is that one of them you're yeah, referring that's, to? And yeah, that's well, one. What would the other one be? I'm not quite sure, mm-hmm. but it's just like, yeah, really limited amount of antitrust, like, uh, yeah, being brought up mm-hmm. in the topic. Before you started your research, mm-hmm. what was your initial impression of the topic? Did did you mm-hmm. lean one way or the other when you first read it? Like, oh, there's going to be a lot of pro arguments, or oh man, the con is it seems a lot easier, or any initial reactions like that? Yeah, personally, I find this topic a lot of like con biased as I see it. Mm. Yeah, because definitely you can't argue with privacy, right? It's really hard in a debate to say well, your privacy doesn't matter that much compared to blah, 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 blah. That's a really bad argument to bring up in the debate, probably. Well, you don't have to argue that privacy doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just kind of outweighed. Like certain, uh, there's a popular topic that was used a lot whenever I was younger. Mm -hmm. And you see it come up every once in a while in Lincoln-Douglas style debates, Mm -hmm. where it is weighing, it asks what's more important, or during an election, Mm-hmm. Is the public's right to know more important than a candidate's right to privacy? Mm. Right? And so in there, obviously, one side doesn't have to say privacy isn't important, but there are sometimes other factors that yeah. play a bigger role. Mm-hmm. And one issue with this topic and privacy that I know we've discussed before and we can talk about it now is that... A lot of these tech giants give away their products for free. Yes. Things like Google Maps, DD service. I mean, I know you pay for DD, but it feels virtually free with how <laughs> yeah. cheap it is. And a lot of these services, some might argue, mm-hmm. is the reason why they can be so cheap is because we are paying them with our personal data with yes. a little bit of losing that invasion of privacy. Yes. So 
couldn't the pro team say that you know privacy is important, but so is money, but we still give up some of our money for a service that we mm-hmm. think is valuable to us. Can't we give up a little bit of our privacy for a service that we think is valuable to us? Yes, that is a great argument on the pro side. And as Kel just mentioned about like free services, I think apart from free services, another point that pro can potentially argue is that this is an entire business model based on the use of privacy and getting advertisements. So currently Google has 73% of its income based on the ads income. That's quite a lot. And we do have to notice that it is our personal data that make this kind of high advertisement revenue possible. Yeah. Because they were able to make like targeted ads and also advertisements to a specific group that were likely to see or producer like to promote their products to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is an entire business model running on it. Amazon uses their proud algorithm to, to push like products you want to buy to you. Mm. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to put you on the spot here right now. Let's mm-hmm. say you're on the pro team mm-hmm. and you're having to give a final focus and the con team is arguing privacy. Mm-hmm. You've got this kind of economic argument. How might you outweigh something like privacy with economics? So if I were on the pro team making a final focus speech, was mm-hmm. it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Oh, it feels so familiar. <laughs> have to save the entire game with just one final focus. That uh, happened a lot in your career? Yeah, especially at the beginning stage. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what I'll probably mention or my framework for the final focus will be like, we are protecting our lifestyle today and for the future. Mm. So for today, the, for the today part, I'll argue about like the current business model of the tech giants, all kinds of free services that we are using right now. We can potentially lose that if we have too much emphasis on the personal privacy part. Mm. And for our lifestyles in the future, for that part, I'll be able to argue the potential technological in- innovations that we have because of the use of private personal data, mm. right? I mean, there are absolutely anonymous data, yes, mm. but using them does not help us that much, right? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by uh, using anonymous data doesn't help us that much? Well, I have a card here talking about researchers complaining that if we emphasis on privacy too much or making mm. all those data absolutely anonymous and make them obliterate the personal traits of them, it became really hard to use, mm. right? It became really hard to do research on them. Also, it doesn't like let out much information for them to have enough, yeah. I think the obvious question then the con mm-hmm. would probably ask is, well, what is the impact of this? How do you measure it? Like what kind of economic difference is there gonna be between a world where this personal data is being able to use and isn't. Are we talking about losing a trillion dollars of global GDP or losing a hundred dollars of global GDP? Quantifiable impact seems kind of important for this pro argument. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. So the data that I have on my hand right now is that YouTube alone contributes like $3.36 billion in Mm. ad revenue. Mm. And that's just barely 11% of Google's uh, ad revenue. And I would think a way to also uh, impact it, add some pathos to your Mm. argument and make it feel more is also talk about, it can be kind of nebulous if you Mm -hmm. just talk about big numbers, right? Mm -hmm. If you're just this amount of $100 million, this amount of this. So talk about in terms of where it actually impacts people's lives. Like how many jobs does Mm -hmm. YouTube facilitate, right? Mm -hmm. Like how many people's lives 
are going to be upended yeah. in a world where we completely ban the use of personal data by these tech giants, right? Mm. People are going to lose their jobs and yes. people are, and that's going to have a human impact, not just in terms of the numbers. And Forgive me, I know this analogy is going to feel a little extreme, and mm -hmm. but I come from kind of an LD philosophy background where we <laughs> talk about things in the abstract. But, yeah. you know, when you compare privacy versus things like welfare, and I don't mean welfare as in the system, I mean like individual welfare, right? Mm -hmm. The individual welfare of a person. Yeah. Most people, I think, would agree that having enough money to afford roof over your head, food yeah. every day, mm -hmm. is probably more important to them than privacy yes. when you have to sacrifice both, I mean, mm -hmm. or one of the other. Obviously, yeah. in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to sacrifice either, but when those two things come into conflict, yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable for the pro team to say that economics or individual welfare supersedes or comes before yeah concerns about privacy. The pyramids of needs, right? Right. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of, yeah, needs, hierarchy of needs, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I would also consider attacking the privacy camp and yeah. the con side by saying, how do you quantify yeah. privacy? Like how much privacy is too much? Mm -hmm. It's very, I think one of the challenges the con team is going to have is really connecting with the judge to make them feel like they can see a clear, bright line yeah. of when too much privacy invasion is too much. Mm -hmm. Because like I mentioned with that other topic, there are times in our lives and our society where we agree that you don't have as much right to privacy. If yes. you are a public official that works for the people, then yeah. you give up some of that privacy mm -hmm. because you're accountable to those people, yes. right? So there are certainly instances where it's okay to give up some privacy. And maybe an argument that the pro team might make is that these tech giants' products, theoretically, now this is a slippery slope, uh, could be trouble because you could turn yourself a little bit on this. If, uh, but you could argue, you know, these tech giants' products are voluntary. No mm -hmm. one is forcing you yeah. to use Facebook. Mm -hmm. And no one is forcing you to ride on DD, right? Mm -hmm. You could walk, you could take a bike, you could take the subway, you could not use Facebook yes. or Instagram or something yep. like that. So at that point, aren't you... The one responsible for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, shouldn't we take responsibility for giving up mm -hmm. your privacy? This isn't... And, and I, I think the way you see this debate happen a lot in the non-debate world, mm -hmm. the way you see this happening in the news and on TV, people talking about it and stuff, they really paint these tech giants as kind of criminals coming in yeah. and stealing your information yeah. and taking it from you and stuff. Really, when you step back and look at it and think about it, all this is voluntary. Yeah. Similar arguments have been given at the antitrust uh, arguments. Mm. So you are like people willingly use Google instead of Bing. You can't really argue it is a, it is a, uh, it is a monopoly when people are given the choice to, to make, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, back on privacy. As we just say, we don't. We might have to weigh privacy against all kinds of economic benefits and also the future potential technological innovations and all the stuff. But I mean, for the pro side, notion of privacy itself is also a ground to, to defend, right? Con will definitely say you will lose your privacy in this way, in that way. But pro can stand up and defend, say use of personal data does not mean 
the loss of privacy. So there are all kinds of ways that we can protect our data from being misused. And also the tech giants have this obligation to make sure they're using the data in a safe way, right? Mm. They have to make sure that nobody can just randomly access their database or at least they're using the data that's not likely to be traceable or there's a concept called anonymization, right? Mm. And also another concept that we talk about in personal data is called pseudo anonymization. Mm. So the difference is a legal one. So anonymized data, technologically speaking, should, should be perfectly anonymous in the way that it cannot be traced to any identifiable individual in any way. But the other concept called pseudo-anonymization, so data after this process, uh, according to EU regulation, is A, such additional information is kept secret, and which means that they are like stored separately, and B, is subject to technological organizational measures to ensure the personal data are not attributed to an, an identifiable individual. So it's either they lock it up and keep the key in a separate case, or it's just stored in a safer way. Mm. Is, yeah, probably. So, so the, yeah. let, let me clarify this. Uh, anonymized data is data where it's theoretically impossible mm -hmm. to know which individuals this data represents. Yes while pseudo-anonymous data mm -hmm. is data that has some level of anonymity to it, mm -hmm. but theoretically you could maybe reverse engineer yes. mm -hmm. who this data comes from. Yeah, so anonymous data is absolutely irreversible. So after it's being anonymized, you can't trace it back. But for the pseudo one, you still keep a key to it mm. and you just locked up the kind of information that can potentially be traced back to it. So in terms of arguments, it mm -hmm. sounds to me like Crow might want to point out personal data either has been or usually is used in an anonymous way. Yes. Maybe has some evidence to prove that. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, there aren't really that many harms mm -hmm. and we can get all the access to our benefits without worrying about Yes. linking to the con. Mm -hmm. Well, the con team might want to argue that even, now I haven't done the research to look into it yet, and the debaters need to do their own research <laughs> to uh, yeah. find out, but maybe the con team looks into it and finds even anonymized data is really most often the pseudo-anonymous, yeah. where mm -hmm. it's the, the name is blacked out, mm -hmm. but you can, with all the other data points, you can find out reverse engineer and find out who that person is. Oh, the proper word should be demographic attributes. Demographic attributes, there yeah, you go. that's it. So that's probably gonna be a term we see come up in the debate tournaments, yeah. I would guess. Yeah, and it's really obscure to, to define whether if a kind of data is really safe or anonymous. For mm. example, one analogy that I love to use is, for example, there's a data about how many people bought apples in Shanghai. For example, apples, the food, right? Yeah, the food, like the food apple, like the fruit apple. For example, if a company just released the number of how many people bought apple, the fruit in Shanghai in 2019, that would be considered anonymous, right? Because you can't trace everybody who bought apple last year mm -hmm. in Shanghai because Shanghai is a huge city. However, if we apply the same kind of way of thinking or the same kind of data saying, if I want to trace how many people who bought private jets in a small town, such as Oberlin last year. Mm. If there is one, it has to be one out of those rich people in town. Right, right? if there's like one billionaire, billionaire that lives in Oberlin and yeah. there's one 
private jet. Private jet that was bought there. It's <laughs> pretty safe to assume they're the one that bought the private jet. Yes. Right. So it's going to be a challenge for both sides mm -hmm. to define what exactly counts as anonymous and pseudo-anonymous, and there's a lot of kind of interesting arguments yeah. and debate that can be made out of that. Yeah, and also for the count side to argue that data are not safe, they might not have to go that technological. Mm. They can just use empirical data or evidence or news, right? For example, Facebook leaks. Right, uh -huh. and yeah, we've had, I mean, there's been so many <laughs> leaks of data. I mean, and not just tech companies, but yeah. like banks mm -hmm. and lots of different companies have yeah. misused people's personal data, not securing it properly, yeah. and other people have gotten a hold of it. Yeah, even my college has one. Those like in the middle of the semester that we receive an email saying that the admissions office, their database has been attacked, and mm -hmm. there's like thousands of data were lost, including the social security number of students. Yeah, so, that's huge, uh -huh. right? And I think some people are going to sleep on this in the beginning, but I think that's going to likely be a mm -hmm. very popular argument on the con team mm -hmm. or a popular strategy for con teams mm -hmm. is to really blow up these instances yeah. of tech companies not securing personal data well enough and mm -hmm. leading to IP theft yeah. and other harms. Mm -hmm. One of my professors in college, uh, I'm a CS minor, so one of my CS professors, CS? yeah, computer science. Okay. Yeah. So one of my professors, she used to make, she used to like work in the data security industry. Mm. So once she was giving us a lecture, and she used a really interesting term. Mm. My second favorite Facebook leak last year. <laughs> so that just gives you an indication of how how many Facebook leaks there are yeah. over here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny. It feels like we forget about them real quickly. You know, mm. they seem to happen so much that we kind of are just always trying to move on to the next one and forget about the last one that mm -hmm. happened. But let me change the direction of our discussion a little bit to mm -hmm. go outside of just arguments and look at the topic wording and the approach to it, right? Mm -hmm. One thing I think we need to, debaters are gonna need to consider or think about is how do we weigh benefits and harms from a time frame perspective? Yeah. Right. We, I think this comes up a lot and no matter what topic we have and no matter how the topic is worded, mm -hmm. there seems to always be a little bit of debate over should we be weighing the harms and benefits of things that have happened in the past? If so, how far back in the past are we allowed to go? Mm -hmm. Or can we use possible future benefits and harms? Right. Like, are there applications to personal data that in terms of maybe like AI technology yes. or these sorts of things, can that be used for the pro team whenever they're making arguments? How do you feel based on the wording of the topic? Two levels, as a judge mm -hmm. or as a coach, what is your initial interpretation? Now, obviously as a judge, you'll go by what the debaters say in the <laughs> yeah. round, but mm -hmm. what is your initial interpretation? What's your kind of gut reaction to which impacts should be weighed in a time frame perspective. Mm -hmm. And then after you answer that, what would be your strategy as a debater mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the time frame? Yeah, so when given this topic, it's hard not to think of the circumstance that we are in right now. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say that the 21st century is the century of data, mm -hmm. right? And data science is being one of the most popular major right now in, in colleges around the world. and there are millions and millions of jobs being created on data analysis, right? That's just one side of the story. And also, 
we're seeing the rise of AI and also uh, deep learning, which all require a huge amount of data to train them, right? You have to feed them data in order to teach them how to properly run. That's another thing. So yes, given the circumstance that we are in right now, it's definitely important to take into consideration the, po the possible future innovations and technology that we use or consume a huge amount of data. Yes. So, you, so you think it's fair game for the pro team to speculate a little bit on possible mm -hmm. benefits in the future? Yes. On this, So then on the same mm -hmm. token, it's probably, if that's true, mm -hmm. then it's fair game for the con team to speculate on yes. potential misuses mm -hmm. of this data in the future, right? Yes. So when we're talking about technologies, always two-sided, right? Pro can argue that we have like better security measures in the future. We can have better potential innovations in the future. And Khan can argue that, okay, you have better security measures. I have like better hacking technologies or ways of hacking. And also, if all of our data is going online, they can argue that in the future, the potential harm of a data leak can be even huger or much larger than we are having right now. I think from a strategy perspective, though, this can be a dangerous road to go down because mm -hmm. the further you get into discussing future harms and benefits, the more you're speculating yeah. and not really using quantifiable mm -hmm. evidence and data to back up your points. Yes. And judges, most are not going to be willing to make assumptions. If they have to, they will, right? If both yeah. sides are just talking about the future, then they're going to have to make a gut decision on that. Yeah. But I think most judges will feel much more comfortable voting based on things that are happening right now mm -hmm. or have happened in the recent past because they feel, I can know the yeah. real effects of this. Mm -hmm. So my advice from a strategy perspective would be try not to put all your eggs in the speculating about the future basket. Of course, yeah, of course. If it certainly can be one strategy, and I could be proved wrong. I, I think I see many kids mm -hmm. kind of try to use these arguments no matter what the topic we have. But mm -hmm. if I were their coach, would tell them to try to always think about it from the judge's perspective. Mm -hmm. What is going to make the judge more comfortable of voting for you? Yeah. And if your arguments are going to involve a lot of speculation and a lot of predictions mm -hmm. about what the future is going to hold, yeah. then the judge is more likely going to be less sure about voting for your arguments. Yeah. So when I was judging, when I hear this kind of arguments about how future can be, or about this uh, future benefits or potential harm argument, one thing that I determined whether if to buy this argument is to see if the debaters have presented a positive or negative trend that is leading toward that future that they're mm. claiming, right? Do they have like a previous evidence proving that data leaks in the 1970s were not that harmful to, a, to an individual? However, as they prove, like in the 2000s, a data leak can, can cause potential identity theft. And then they jump up and argue that in the future we have more data online. If it leaks, if it's just like a small leak can lead to a domino effect in the future, that will be like a proper argument to say the debater presented a trend that data leaks are becoming more and more harmful. Yeah, I think that's great advice actually on how to make your arguments about what might happen in the future more mm -hmm. trustworthy, more credible, mm -hmm. more persuasive. I would still point out, however, though, that there is a logical fallacy technically going on yeah. there. I'm I'm not good at remembering all the names of mm -hmm. the different logical fallacies or something, but it's like the because 
a trend happened in the past that's going to continue mm -hmm. in the future. Uh, there's a fancy name for it, but mm -hmm. I can't think of it right now. Yeah. But, you know, the way it was always explained to me in philosophy classes, stuff like that, is the evidence that the sun has mm -hmm. come up every day mm -hmm. is not evidence that the sun will come up tomorrow. Oh, yeah, definitely. Past occurrences do not prove future occurrences, right? Like, now you can prove that the sun will come up tomorrow based on scientific evidence. Look, there's where the sun is, our earth is rotating here, you can crunch the numbers, stuff like that. Okay, yeah, we can say 99.9999999% accuracy, sun will come up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But the simple just pointing to something that occurred before yeah. mm -hmm. is not technically evidence that it's going to happen again. Oh, uh, yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, of course. I, and like I said, I'm sure someone will send me an email or something it's like that's the blue the blue ocean fallacy or whatever there's a name for all these fallacies <laughs> yeah. and i don't i don't know what the name of that one is but that is some defense that any team can have against mm -hmm. another one who's trying to use that sort of trend yeah. i'm not necessarily disagreeing with you though it is definitely persuasive and all that really matters you know i see some debaters sometimes get caught up in these logical fallacy arguments in crossfires and stuff and they kind of forget that there are three elements to rhetoric persuasion, right? Mm -hmm. Ethos, pathos, and logos. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not necessarily going to win every argument just because you're on the right side of logos. Mm -hmm. And if you are persuasive, you can sometimes win with an argument that technically is a logical fallacy. Debate is not a search for truth. Debate is a game. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes you can win games with strategies that exploit the weaknesses mm -hmm. of judges you yeah know, stuff like well that. my coach always told me is that when you start a debate there exists two parallel worlds there's a debate world and there's a real world mm -hmm. yeah you have to present a judge that your claim will definitely happen in a debate world not necessarily in the real world i agree with that philosophy now and in the United States, I think especially in the college circuit, there is a little bit more of a debate about debate over mm -hmm. how much should the real world play in yeah. our game that we're playing. Mm -hmm. I do not want to get into a back and forth about that with anyone. Uh, please don't email me about that. A year. And both sides make fine arguments. I personally just always from... Sounds like same with you whenever I was in high school and started and all that sort of stuff. I always approached debate and believed it was best when it's treated like a game. Mm -hmm. When what you say in the round doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening in the real world. Yes. I got to make the caveat of saying, like, even with my strong position that debate should be treated as a game, there are still limits, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't say something racist or sexist and be expected to, I'm just debating, it's just the game, I'm allowed to do that, right? Like, you still yeah, have to be held accountable for your real-world actions at a certain point. I'm not a, I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> but I do think debate is better whenever we play it as a game. That's yeah, just the point course. I'm making. Mm -hmm. I see the same way. So, uh, are there any other arguments you've found in your research that you thought were very interesting wanted to talk about? Well, let's see. Yeah, you can potentially talk about the tech giants monopolizing over the data. Mm. And also, since they monopolize the data, they have more resources, they can also cope with the new policies, potential new policies on privacy better. Mm. So, here's what I started from. So, the UN had this new regulation called GDPR, which is General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, it's a reg regulation being on for years, and it talks about data privacy. 
for all companies that use data from the European Union. So no matter if you're an American company, you're a Chinese company, you're a company from India, as long as you use data from the, from the citizens of the European Union, you are required to apply to this regulation. It's called GDPR. And for those of you living in the States, you'll find like whenever you open a website, you'll find cookie policy, right? There's a tab jumping up saying oh, you have to tap OK. That's all because of those websites were required by GDPR to include that. So back when I was doing the research, Microsoft, in order to cope with this new policy, had 1,600 full-time engineers working on this, right? So just imagine if this is a small company that they just happen to use some of the EU citizen data, they want to cope with it, like how much effort they have to put in in order to achieve this, right? Not all companies have the resource as Microsoft to do that. That's very interesting. At first, I was kind of wondering, where is he going with this? I'm going to have to ask him, what are the debate implications of this? But I think he came around to it. And that is very interesting. So let me make sure mm-hmm. I understand your point. So there's a potential argument there that personal data regulation mm-hmm. actually benefits the big monopolized companies because smaller companies do not have the resources mm-hmm. to properly adhere to laws and regulations regarding personal data use. Yes. That's very interesting. So Microsoft is so proud that they written in a formal statement saying, we respect this regulation so much. We are so committed to it that we have more than 1,600 engineers across the company just simply working on this project. I remember seeing a statistic. Now, anyone who's listening to this needs to go do their own research because I just remember seeing this. I'm going to get it wrong. I think it was either Apple or Microsoft. I think it was Apple, but it could have been Microsoft, where they paid their top lawyer who worked in personal data use $25 million last year. One lawyer uh, (laughs) who worked in that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's one of probably hundreds that they employ. And so... You can imagine, I think that's a good point. You're a small mom and pop, if there are any mom and pop tech companies, are going to have trouble competing with those big giants. Yeah. And I think that's why you see, when I was doing research for the tech giant topic last year, I found that Apple averages about 200 acquisitions a year. Mm. They buy 200 companies a year. Now, these are small companies, you usually don't hear about them, like companies that have a particular algorithm to make the AirPod Pro faster. Yeah, or you know, like little tiny things, right? Mm-hmm. But you could argue that one of the reasons why all these companies are so willing to sell to Apple when they come knocking or mm-hmm. Facebook or whoever is cuz they know their time is limited. Yeah. They can only grow so much until they're not going to be able to mm-hmm. have the resources. They got to get out with their good idea and cash out as quickly as possible because Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google will be able to take their idea, their technology, make it their own if they don't cash out quick enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking about threatening an entire business model, maybe business models, as we just mentioned. There was the advertising model, which trade personal data for ad, right? They Mm -hmm. put like targeted ads on on the users. And another potential business model that gets threatened is like for the startup companies starting in the garage, right? They potentially made an app or made a product that collects some of the user's data. And that's all they have to improve their own product, right? 
they have to use the really limited personal data in order to improve their product for future sales, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft has thousands of sales that they can, thousands of ways of getting data, but the use of personal data is all those small companies have. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's another potential threat to the yeah, startups. Mm. So let's start wrapping this up by saying, let's try to be fair to both sides. What services do you use? Mm -hmm. that you love or feel like you can't live without that you know uses your personal data, tech services that you, Zaichi, like and use and you have, make a... Obviously, you personally have decided, I'm okay with my privacy being violated for these, for these services. Do you have any? Yeah, of course. First of all, like, I just had lunch. I ordered takeout, I ordered delivery, so I had my location shared with the company, right? And also my phone number. But for the name part, I decided to just make it my, my family name instead of my full name mm. on contact list. So I left my number and my last name and my location. That's phone number though, right? Yeah, phone number. Phone numbers attached with your national ID, right? Yeah, that's still so given given some proper skills or or barely just a really limited level of skill, you can still find. Well, the way the way data is being interconnected nowadays, I mean, everything mm -hmm. is so connected. There's almost no tech service you can use in China that doesn't ask you to share your phone number. Yeah. Right. And whenever you apply for that phone number, you have to give your national ID or in my yeah. case, passport. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, it's kind of hard to argue that any of the data we give away, even if we try to hide it here in China, mm -hmm. is not anonymous. It can be at best. It's pseudo anonymous. Mm -hmm. right? That's that's what I'm trying to argue, saying that data leaks in the future are potentially more harmful or more mm -hmm. catastrophic. As long as you leak one single data point, your entire profile gets leaked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the Kong team can definitely make a convincing point that mm -hmm. no personal data is ever going to be completely secure. Yeah. But maybe, you know, the pro can counter back with that of like, that's just life. This isn't new. Every new technology, every new innovation mankind comes up with yeah. is going to have risks involved with it. What mm -hmm. we have to do is weigh what kind of benefits are these risks giving us? And you know, if Microsoft, if Google, if these companies are employing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all around the world, they're mm -hmm. creating wealth and they are maybe doing philanthropy, giving back, mm -hmm. maybe those risks are worth it. Yeah, do you think it's a good analogy to make with social contract theory? So to form a government, we willingly give up some of our rights and you can argue similarly in order to get the services or for the innovations of the tech companies or for the entire human race, we're willingly giving up some of our personal data. I think there's some places that the social contract analogy would break down a little bit. Since social contract theory is technically about the political implications of giving up certain rights for the protection of others, but I do think, yes, I agree with you that that social contract theory mm -hmm. idea is kind of analogous to the business contract yeah, business we contract. make with tech companies or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And for anyone who's listening that enjoys political philosophy or politics theory or government's history, definitely recommend looking into social contract theory. 
it uh, sounds like you're familiar with social contract theory, right? Are you a Locke, Rousseau, or Hobbesian? Well, <laughs> I don't quite know the distinctions. Yeah, mm. I just use the yeah. Well, it would take a whole nother podcast to go over all the details. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe that's something, you know, out there, listeners, if any of you would be interested in hearing a more detailed breakdown of social contract theory, mm-hmm. send in an email or give us some feedback and I can consider doing an episode on it. But to just give you a brief little explanation, this is overgeneralizing a lot. So there's the state of nature and then after the state of nature. Mm-hmm. State of nature is what the world looked like before governments, societies, mm-hmm. communities, stuff like that. Post state of nature is whenever we collectively got together and formed societies, groups. This is a thought experiment. No one, even the most diehard social contract theorists, argue that there really was this period of time called the state of nature. It's much more muddy and much more complicated than that. But in order, in, but this is the thought experiment that social contract theorists uh, look at. They ask, what was life like in the state of nature? And why did humans decide to transition to a system that... Post-state of nature. Post-state of nature, right. Mm-hmm. So Hobbes, who wrote the Le- Leviathan and mm-hmm. was a monarchist, there's a lot of debate over <laughs> if he truly believed mm-hmm. in kings and divine right or he was just a smart guy who realized crypto he, crypto monarchist well, well he did he realize that if he wrote anti-king he'd get his head chopped off right mm-hmm. so there's a lot of debate over if he really felt that way but hobbes described the state of nature or the famous quote is it was nasty brutish and short mm-hmm. and what he meant by that is life in the state of nature Someone could come over and knock you over the head and steal all your stuff. You have no recourse. There's no police officer to go to. There's no yeah. government, anything like that. And what we needed, reason we went to the state of nature, is for that protection. And in him, the post-state of nature in our government system, the best form of that is a monarchy, a king, because they have divine rule. They can protect mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Now, this is the key distinction between Locke, Rousseau, and Hobbes. Hobbes views state of nature in a very, very pessimistic okay. way. Locke views state of nature with a little bit more mm-hmm. positive aspects because he believes in the state of nature you were truly free. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't give up any sort of sacrifices to get into that government. You yeah. know, I give up my right to be able to do with my land whatever I want mm-hmm. in order to be able to be protected yeah. with police or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give up some rights to have other rights protected. Mm-hmm. Hobbes viewed that as a very, you know, I'm going from a very negative life in state of nature to a more positive one. Mm-hmm. Locke, and again, I'm generalizing, mm-hmm. but Locke viewed a kind of more free, open state of nature, and now I'm being kind of restricted, having uh, my rights okay. taken from me whenever I do that. Rousseau, I would say, is a little bit in the middle. He, he is not as extreme on either side. Mm-hmm. Now, for anyone listening out there, I, I know I'm generalizing this and that sort of thing, but whenever you ask, when I ask the question, are you a Lockean, Rousseau, <laughs> or Hobbesian, kind of the question is like, what is your view of the state of nature? Is Bad or good, as they claim it to be. Mm -hmm. But this is way off topic. I am not even sure this will make it onto the podcast. Uh, We may have to just save social contract theory for another time, and I need to do some research because I'm probably getting stuff wrong and talking out of my ass. Um, So 
Is there anything else you think be good to cover before we sign off? Yeah, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's all I have so far. All right, I'm going to do a little bit of a outro. Mm-hmm. All right, is there anything you'd like to, some sort of shout-out you'd like to do before we finish up some... You want to say hi to your mom, or you got some project you're working on you want to talk about, or give a shout out to something? Yeah, for those of debaters coming to the Tournament Champions this next weekend, or next next weekend, depending on when this podcast is released. So for those of you coming to Tournament Champions, make sure you better utilize your prep time. As a judge, I'll be looking on those. Because <laughs> I really hate it when second speakers just stand up, and give his rebuttal speech without using one single second of his prep time and then leave like two and a half minutes for her for his or her final focus speech that's not the best strategy to apply especially now we have three minutes of prep times in total that's a lot to better utilize for i a thousand percent agree with that advice and i hope the listeners take it to heart Mm -hmm. so thank you for listening to this episode of speaker points an nsda china podcast Remember, we are always wanting to get feedback and suggestions. You can email us at nsdachina at gmail.com. Be looking out for the spring regionals with the tech companies topic that we discussed today. Also, signups are ready and available to go for the summer tournaments. We've got U.S. Nationals going to be in June, and we have the summer camps at Harvard. We're also going to be holding... NSDA summer camps like we did last year and much bigger we're looking to have maybe four of them four two-week camps so for more information you can go to nsda.cn and remember to email us at nsdachina at gmail.com and thank you again to my guest Sai Chi and Jayo yeah thank you